Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are really, really excited to have a guest on the show. Um, It's Dr. Sherry King. Uh, Her bio is just too long for me to go through in its entirety. So I'm just going to hit some highlights. In uh, 2019, she was honored for the Distinguished Service Award at the Equine Science Society's 2019 Symposium. Uh, She uh, did earn her PhD at the University of California, Davis with Dr. Warren Evans. And then she ran the equine science program at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale for a number of years. She says she's retired currently, but you know what? I find that hard to believe. (laughs) Her Facebook postings are always informational and full of facts that I love reading them. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. King. We're really glad you're here and we're excited to be discussing misinformation in the equine industry with you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm really honored to be with you guys. Your uh, bio, it was, it, I was amazed that you've mentored 22 graduate students through graduation, and then you've had a lengthy list of grants and research and contracts funded. It's amazing that you have you just continue to put good information out there. So how pertinent it is that you're here to discuss um, misinformation with us. Well, I, I think it's a growing problem. It's always been around, but navigating the misinformation highway now that we have computers and social media is becoming more complex. So I think it's something that the average viewer and certainly the young equine scientists needs to learn the ins and out of, outs of to try to figure out what is good information and what is not. Totally agree. And what do you find, um, you know, as far as um, the most misinformed category of equine science, uh, of equine society, if you want to call it that, because horse owners were all such a community. It's like everyone knows everyone else and we're all connected we all understand what drives us to study the horse to own horses it it's not just um a it's a lifestyle it's not just Mm -hmm. having a horse it becomes your lifestyle you plan everything around your horses so what do you find what are some of the uh, fallacies that really drive you crazy (laughs) Well, I guess I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit and, and first talk about the motivations of, of the misinformation purveyors. And, and 
before I paint with a really broad brush and try to damn the people who are doing this, um, it's not always intentional. A matter of fact, I would say most of it is absolutely unintentional. Horse people have the best of intentions. Um, We all love our animals and we want to do best by them and we want them to keep them happy and healthy. So if we see a tidbit of information on a website or in social media and we want to believe it, we will have a tendency to do so whether it's true or not. So, but for those who are promoting misinformation, I'd say there's, there's three big motivations and it's something that I think people who are trying to tease out whether a fact is true or not needs to keep these in the back of their mind and, and ask, is the website or the social media poster or whatever being motivated by profit or popularity, ego, trying to drive website traffic, or by a political agenda. So I call it the three Ps. So if they have a biased perspective, that means that they're going to be promoting a certain political or viewpoint. Um, If they are trying to sell something, obviously they're going to try to drive people to their website or to the products that they're trying to sell. And, and then um, popularity has become something that's been a big motivator, especially in social media, how many likes you can get, how many hits, how many visits. So I'd say those are the three P's that one should keep in the back of their mind when they're reading anything about horses. As far as the, the top misinformation goes, um, it runs the gamut. Almost any subject as it relates to horses has truth and fallacy to it. Um, as far as the things that the myths that I like to bust, um, they fall into the feeding and nutrition category. And I guess that's probably if I had to choose one category, that would be the one that I would choose as the, the most um, misinformation that gets um, thrown around the internet. Um, then you get housing care and management as far as stabling, um, any of the management things, blanketing, shoeing, management for the environment, what have you. Um, and then thirdly would be health. So wellness, injury, different kinds of therapies for horses, what can keep them healthy, what to do when they're unhealthy. I'm not even going to get into the training and use category because I don't feel that I'm qualified to comment on that at all. I'm a science nerd. I come at equine science from the science perspective. And I realized long ago that I did not have the patience to be a horse trainer. So I promptly got into a whole different field in horses. <laughs> wow, that that is so true. And how many people become a jack of all trades without doing any one specific thing very well. So, you know, I applaud you and being able to decipher right away and hone in on where your contributions could benefit the horse industry the most. And when you mentioned those three categories, what I think was really interesting is, as you said, each one 
I could think of things I've heard for each one. <laughs> like for nutrition, we've talked about supplements a couple of times and people, um, you know, just like looking at a horse and passing a comment, oh, they need this supplement just because uh-huh. they looked at them and they think, oh, add that into the feed. That'll solve all your problems <laughs> or how long they should be stables and how long they should be turned out and how much environmental enrichment they should have. It's, I think there's, for every one of them, there's just something you can think when it came to injury as well. You know, people are so variable with what they think is an appropriate amount of time for rest Mm -hmm. and and recovery. And that always fascinates me. You know, people, well, in my experience can be quite quick to try and get horses back to work because they sometimes seem to be more worried that keeping them off for too long will do more damage. Mm-hmm. Yes. And being able to recognize the difference between therapies that relieve pain versus those that actually are helping with the healing process. And if the therapy is relieving pain, at what point has the horse healed enough to go back into training? And how would you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I had a veterinarian here at the farm yesterday and we were floating teeth and uh, I told him what we were going to be talking about today. And he said his pet peeve is when he's at a barn and a horse owner interrupts him to counter what he's saying. (laughs) And he said, so ask Dr. King, why is it that horse owners in particular think they can interject when a vet is meeting with a client and the client is the one paying for the visit and someone else will come up and give an expose on what the horse needs or, you know, whatever the situation may be. And his reply always is, okay, who is paying me right now? Because I do charge by the hour. (laughs) (laughs) He says, I'm not going there ever. But he goes, it doesn't necessarily happen with other animals like cows or pigs, because we're an agricultural community here. He said, but it always happens with horses. So I said, well, I don't know. I'll check into that. (laughs) I think that that comes with developing a good relationship with your veterinarian and and having a good trusting relationship on both sides of the equation so that the the veterinarian is not being authoritarian with the client, but actually explaining the situation and the various options the client has and then the client also not interjecting all the time as if they know more than the veterinarian. It's a fine line there. And, and I think it's a dance that, that some people and some professionals do well. And I think it's a dance that others need to learn the steps for. Yep, that is so true. And what a great answer, because how many times, I mean, the longer you're around horses, I think the less you think you know. But how often when I look back, when I first got into horses, for some reason, you think you know so much. And and (laughs) once you get involved, and you start learning and studying and 
all this, oh my God, you begin to realize how much you don't know. And maybe that's part of it too. That's all part of the learning yeah. process. I, yeah. I wish I could have my very first horse back, even if I could have him back for five minutes so yeah. that I could apologize to him. Me too, Sherry. I'm right there with you. What I would do different now than what exactly. I did back then, you know. But um, yeah, uh, what Kate said is so true. I can think of an instance in every one of those categories of a complete 180 on opinions. So I'm going to let you continue on. Did you want to do each category with something as an example? Or did you want to interject more about the science? And why do you think people are less likely to follow what the science says? Let me talk about the science first. And as okay. I'm talking about it, maybe I can interject a few examples. Okay. I have sitting in front of me right now, I've called up some of my old presentations on myth busting, and I've got three different presentations in front of me and collecting. I think I have 40 or 50 different myths sitting in front of me. So, um, oh, brilliant. Th there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I think one of the, the things that, um, well, two of the things in men's perspective, I think that, that motivates us in the horse world would be human emotion. And we talked about that a little bit. I mean, we love our horses. We want them to be happy. We identify really strongly with the equine lifestyle. And like you said, it is a lifestyle. It's not a career. It's not a job. It's not a hobby. It's a lifestyle to choose. And that means sometimes we're resistant to anything that challenges that relationship that we build, have built or think we've built. And we're necessarily drawn to anything that reinforces it. I mean, there, there's a technical term for that. It's called confirmation bias. And it is tending to listen to or believe those things that reinforce something that we already believe. It's much more difficult to accept a fact or something that's different from what you already think to be true. So you have to have an open mind, basically. Um, a good example of confirmation bias for me is, um, and I try not to pick on any individual, but one of the things that you see out on the internet a lot in recent years is the idea of a bitless bridle. And um, the explanation behind the bitless bridle is basically a um, condemnation of bits. And I don't want to get into that part of the discussion. But the idea behind the bitless bridle and the justification for at least the Cook bitless bridle, which was started by a veterinarian, Dr. Cook, was the idea or the hypothesis that um, bits cause restricted breathing. So the technical word for it is dynamic laryngeal collapse. But basically, the dynamics of putting a bit in a horse's mouth because of the way that their pharynx is constructed, um, it will limit the breathing of that horse and, and therefore is cruel. And actually, when scientists have gone 
gone back and looked at this because the justifications used don't make scientific sense given the physiology of the area. Um, they've actually proven that that is not true. Bitless bridles do not um, prevent dynamic laryngeal collapse. In fact, there was one study that said they did it more often. Um, my, I, my, my intention here is to not condemn bitless bridles, not condemn Dr. Cook. It is an example of confirmation bias. If you believe that bits are cruel, you are necessarily going to be more susceptible to believing the alternative any form of bitless bridle is going to be a, a better choice for you. And then you will find ways to justify that. So that is one of the things that I would warn equine science students and, and all people to be aware of is what are my prior beliefs? And am I falling into the trap of thinking this is a wonderful post or a good tidbit of information because it confirms what I already believe? Wow, that's that's really enlightening. I think I may fall into some of those categories. <laughs> oh, I know I do. <laughs> yeah. I, know I think I do. confirmation I bias is it's so easy to slip into because I even I mean, when I was a student, if I left an assignment too late, you know, I would write it with my view and I would find the research to back it up because that was the easiest way to write the assignment. It took far less time then trolling through both arguments, you just pick a size and run with it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's what's so challenging about being a scientist, because as you are brought through the ranks of trying to be a scientist, what you are trained to do is to try to jettison all of your preconceptions and remain open-minded to the idea that, um, what was believed yesterday may not be true today because it's an evolving science. Um, and your belief system really should not play a role in the hard factual science. That's a very difficult thing to do. It's kind of overcoming human nature. And it's a struggle that all scientists go through every day and I, horse people do as well. So you have to keep that in mind. Absolutely. Wow. The, the other thing you have to watch out for, and this is a mouthful, but it's called anthropomorphism. And I think probably you guys understand that word, but it's basically ascribing human traits to non-human species. And it's a natural human trait to perceive the life of other animals through your own eyes, your own experience. Um, it's extremely hard to overcome, but you have to keep on beating yourself over the head with the idea that a horse is not a human. Yeah, yeah. And so many of our perceptions, our management, some of the choices we make for our horses is based on our human perception of the world, what makes us comfortable, what makes sense to us. It's not necessarily true for the horse. One that pops into my head right away is the perception of cold. It's wintertime. I'm cold right now. I'm always cold. Um, and the idea, if you're cold, your horse is cold. Um, and usually anything 
is, can't be further from the truth. Horses, if left to their own devices, are so well endowed with the ability to thermoregulate, particularly in the cold, they evolved on the edge of glaciers. Um, it is rare for a horse to be too cold. It is easy for a horse to be too hot. So, um, and I know you see this all the time in, in some of the, the funny memes that I see on social media anyway, with a human shivering and a horse with two or three blankets on and the horses <laughs> yes. talking to one another saying, my owner is cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, horses are not humans. Uh, equine scientists need to learn about a horse and to always think of it from the perspective and the physiology of the animal, which is a huge challenge rather than the perspective of a human. And if we can overcome those two giant hurdles, we would go a long way to rejecting the misinformation that's, that's out there. Boy, that's the truth, especially when it comes to um, forage, freedom and friends. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's really what horses want. And they would buy airline tickets to a 40 degree climate. Not so <laughs> much when it's like 60, 65 or above. So, so true. I always tell my friends, hey, horses are horses. They're not French poodles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. And French poodles aren't humans either. No, they're not. Yeah. No. That that touched on one of my pet peeves. Yes. When people treat their dogs and cats like they're their children. Yeah. Um mm -hmm. it's yeah. And let them behave in insane ways that you wouldn't like an animal would not naturally behave that way. But we've almost had an impact or we have had an impact on their behavior because we're forcing these human traits on them. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and even in the horse world, it's, I call them the horse huggers, you know, the, the people that, that treat their and think of their horses as giant children. It's not healthy for them. And it's certainly not healthy for the horses. And I think it takes away from a really unique dynamic that you could end up having with a completely different species that lives at an entirely different end of the life spectrum. I mean, you're talking about a predator and prey forming yeah. a relationship together. There's lots and lots we can learn if we allow, if we honor that difference instead of trying to make horses into our children. Amen. Yep. So one of the other things, if, if I might say about the dissemination of misinformation is so that people can recognize it when they come across it um, is what I call the construction of a bologna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you construct a bologna sandwich by layering, right? You, you put yeah. the bread and then you layer the innards and then you put another piece of bread. So if you think of misinformation as the innards of that sandwich, but it is flanked by facts, on both sides. So the bread is a fact, you put the bologna in between, and then you, you enclose it with another fact. That's often what you will see when you go to these websites that promote misinformation about horses. So they make it very believable because they're wedging that misinformation in with 
true facts. So it makes it look so much more believable. And the, the other way that we can be misled into believing misinformation is to equate correlation with causation. Uh-huh. So what do I mean by that? Um, let me take one common myth. The myth is horses tend to colic when the weather changes. Okay. Have you ladies heard of that before? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I did. Think, okay. I think we did an episode on it. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's correlation. You know, the, there's a sudden weather change and horses, a certain number of horses will colic. Um, the idea being that one creates the other rather than one just is associated with the other. So, you know, if the weather gets cold and if you take your outdoor horse and bring it inside and change its um, feeding pattern and change behavior and management pattern, you're changing its gut environment and you're going to increase the chances of colic in that horse. There's no relation to barometric pressure at all, but there's a correlation versus causation. Another one would be like the common myth that Arabians as a breed have denser bones than other breeds of horses. There's no density change that is related to breed. There is, however, a density change as it relates to size. So... Arabians tend to be smaller than, for example, warm bloods, which means that your average Arabian would have denser bones than your average warm blood. Your average Arabian won't have denser bones than your average Shetland pony. But do you see where there's a correlation and it's being mistaken for causation there? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's so easy for your brain to just click into that. Oh, this association is true therefore this has to be the cause of it Um, and if somebody wants to intentionally mislead you it's so easy to do after you mentally make that leap yep and that bologna sandwich I'll never forget that analogy now because that (laughs) is so good the way they intertwine truth with misinformation where it's more you swallow it you accept it because it is part of the whole sandwich. So that's a great analogy. I think it's something too, though, that is incredibly difficult for people to pick out. And um, like, I suppose, useful information. And it's something like research methods is something you're taught when you do a degree or you do a master's. And right. I've had this discussion with my sister who is in an entirely different, she's on the human side um, and has done a master's. And we've talked about how we didn't have the skill set to pick out good information. And you really see that over the last couple of years where a lot of information is being thrown around on what you would have once considered reputable sites. So that draws you in as well. You know, you're thinking, oh, this is our national news station you know, I've always trusted what they said. That must be accurate. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's it's such a skill to learn and probably something we should be teaching much earlier. You know, it should happen in high schools and secondary schools. 
Oh, I believe it needs to happen in grade schools. We give tablets to grade school kids. And once we hand yeah. them any kind of electronic media, we need to hand them the information to sort through that media. Um, but that's my own opinion. That's, um, that's a great point. <laughs> it is, absolutely. Um, and for me, fact-checking has just become pretty much second nature. That concludes part one of our interview with Dr. King. Be sure and join us next week and we'll have part two and talk more about misinformation in the horse industry. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining in. We'll see you next week.